in military and law enforcement circles, there is not one name that is more respected than Viking Tactics. And today I get a chance to connect with somebody that I haven't talked to in a long time, Kyle Lamb and his wife who started one of the most respected names in tactical training. So I'm excited to catch up with my friend Kyle Lamb on this episode of Unbeatable. These stories of triumph over adversity will help you handle your toughest days in life and become unbeatable. This episode is brought to you by my friends at the Solomon Foundation. With more than 7,000 investors, the Solomon Foundation is committed to helping the local church grow. And when you partner with them, you get an excellent return while making an eternal impact. So start today at thesolomonfoundation.org. And now to my interview with Kyle Lamb. Kyle, it has been a long time and I have been looking forward to this conversation. Thanks for joining me today, buddy. Yeah, it's great to see you. I, I think the... I, I may be wrong, but I think the last time I saw you was in Mosul, Iraq. Yeah, well, I was going to say, seeing each other, we've been crossing paths and kind of, I, I've been I've been following in your wake or in your dust for like the last 15 years, but I don't think I've seen you in since we were, since the last time we were on a battlefield together. Man, it's great to see you. And by the way, for those of you who are driving and don't get a chance to watch this one on YouTube, Kyle, you look good. For being an old, crusty, what? you know, now, special what? operator like me. Crusty? Come on now. Both of us are old and crusty. I'll admit it. I got a little gray in my beard. You got a little gray in your beard. You officially fit the quali- uh, the criteria for being a gray beard in the, mil- I, to yeah, the military. Yeah, like we were talking before we started this. I actually have grandkids now. Yeah, so I've got two I. grandkids. So it's uh, life continues, you know. You just got to hang on. Yeah. Um, lots and lots of people in the special operations U.S., well, in the world's military, in law enforcement circles, all of them know your name. But for the listener out there who doesn't run in those circles, your name is going to be new to them today. So let's go back a little bit and talk about life in South Dakota, because I I come from the upper Midwest, too, not far from you, um, before you join the Army and end up... uh, doing a pretty legendary career in the military. Well, I, I, as you said, I grew up in South Dakota. I grew up on a, a dirt farm there. I, yeah, my dad raised, uh, we raised registered Herefords a little bit and then mostly just Herefords. All right. We had, you know, corn, wheat, oats, we had horses and I was big into the horses, but I wasn't much of a farmer. I liked making hay, but I didn't, I just wasn't like a farm yeah. guy. I liked more hunting and fishing and doing that. And uh, I rodeoed. I played football and baseball. You were in the rodeo. Tell me uh, what you did in rodeo. So in rodeo, I rode bulls and barebacks, and I roped. Holy and cow! Luckily, I was not good at any of those, so I ended up in the military yes. because in the army, I mean, I, I don't know, jumping out of an airplane is a whole lot safer than getting on a bull. And uh, totally agree. Yep. It was a lot of fun, but I, I, I always kind of had this thing at the back of my head that I wanted to be uh, law enforcement or military or something like that. And I, you know, the movie Rambo had come out and I I don't know, it was just, it it was, it seemed like what I wanted to do. Yeah. So I got married right before I left for the army. You did really on Friday, the 13th of June. So that's coming up here pretty soon. I got married and, uh, left for the army and, and 
I didn't know what I was getting into. I mean, I honestly yeah. had no clue what I was getting into. But then when I got there, as you know, you find your tribe. Yeah, definitely. And man, it was just like everybody around me. Basic in AIT, not much because I went to Fort Sill, Oklahoma. I was a commo guy. Uh huh. That probably wasn't my better time in the military. But then I went to Fort Benning. And I met my first black hat at jump school. And I'm like, who are these dudes? They're yeah. squared away. And then I started meeting other people, you know, Rangers. And then I went to the 82nd and was a paratrooper. And I just realized that I I really had found the group of people that I wanted to hang out with. Yeah. Everything about your story that you're describing sounds similar to mine. I'm in the upper Midwest in the Northwest part of Iowa, I'm not living in a farm town. My last year of high school, got no idea what I'm going to do with the rest of my life and show up to an army recruiter with no idea what I was getting into. And then like you, man, I caught the bug for uh, the best way to describe it when I joined the army and, and got connected to the Ranger Regiment and decided I want to do this for the rest of my life. They're going to have to force me out of this. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's how much I enjoyed it. No, it's been, I, I still miss that camaraderie, but I'm lucky because I get to talk to guys like you yeah. and I, I, I have a constant phone conversations or text strings going on with people I served with. And then other people that I've met that, that also served. And then the law enforcement guys that I know, and it, it's, it's, it's a good community. Well, Kyle, let's just face it. You are the go-to guy for all of the cool guys when they have a question about shooting or about guns or something like that. So you're going to be in those circles until your last breath, man. <laughs> I hope so. It's yeah. fun. I I, uh, I never really pictured myself as a gun guy, even though I always am the gun guy Yeah. because I'm not really, a, I'm not like a gun geek. I'm a shooter geek. So I like to shoot. So currently I I've started shooting PRS, you know, long range uh -huh. competition. I've started yeah. shooting NRL hunter matches. I still am teaching, you know, carbine and pistol and doing that. But I don't know if it's a bow or a BB gun. <laughs> I'm I want to shoot it. Yeah. I don't. I really don't care what it is or throwing right. a knife or throwing a hatchet or whatever. It's I've always been that way. Um, I don't own an SKS, so I don't consider myself a gun geek because yeah. I think I'd have to own an SKS in uh -huh. order to be that guy. Well, let's talk real briefly about the, and, and, and honestly, this deserves an episode and a half, but like you, I spent a little bit of time in the 82nd, um, most of my career, like you, in special operations, clandestine units. So can you give us kind of the short version of what your career looked like while you were in the military? But I want to spend a lot of this episode talking about what you've done and what you are doing since retirement. So I started out, as I said, in the 82nd Airborne. I was in the 504th Parachute Infantry Regiment. I served in the same regiment. Yep. First Brigade, the devils in baggy pants. Uh -huh. um, just a bridge too far. I mean, yeah, that's that's, that's right. the unit that we're stepping into the the, the boots of the guys that, that did that. You know, Operation Market Garden, yeah. uh, 504th didn't jump into D-Day, but they... They did everything else. They crossed so, the Wall River and you oh, know, jumped yeah. into Holland and crossed the Wall River. Those guys are incredible. I'm getting I actually just got goosebumps yeah. just thinking about that because we we're we're around these legendary I mean, we're walking on the same streets yeah. as those yeah. legends were there. So I went to eighty second, I spent three years there, and then from there, my wife said, Well, you ought to try out for special forces. And I thought, There's no way I can do that. I mean, these guys are walking around and 
you know, eating snakes and whatever they do. So I went to SFAS. I made it through that. I went to the Q Corps, Special Forces course. Uh Um, I was actually in Arabic language school. And that's another story. I've got a a very new friend that's an Egyptian uh, Muslim guy that's we've become very, very close. Which yeah. is a, which is an interesting twist for us, and you yeah. know what I'm talking about, right? Absolutely. So, uh, I'm in Arabic language school when Saddam Hussein invades Kuwait, and I knew exactly where I was going because I was going to go to Fifth Special Forces Group. Uh-huh. So, my son was born on the first of September, and by the end of September, I was in in uh, King Fahd International yeah. Airport. Oh yeah. And had you, have you been there? Yeah. Well, okay. I'm not there uh, in Kuwait. Yeah. Kuwait yep. City. Yeah. So, yeah, at that time, Doha, Camp Doha didn't even uh-huh. exist because, I mean, the Iraqis had overrun Kuwait. So I went over there for six months for Desert Shield, Desert Storm. And what I, I guess what I learned was I was a Camo guy. I was 18 Echo. Uh-huh. And I got stuck in the base station. And when they let me out and I got to go up on the border by Kafji and do some yeah. stuff there. And I didn't do anything high speed. I did nothing high speed. I sat there and made Camo and that's all I did. You did your job and you did I, it yeah, well. I, I did my sure, job of course. And, and that's awesome. That's what we all should aspire to do. But when I came back from that, I was really ready. They had put me on a team a little bit, just like helping some guys yeah. out, but I wasn't officially on an ODA. So I come back from Desert Shield, Desert Storm, and I'm thinking, okay, I've done my time as a commo dude in the base station, I'm going to go and be on a team as a That's team right. ODA, uh, SF ODA guy. And they go, man, you did a great job. We're going to send you to P- battalion C and E. I was going to say, I already know where this is going. You and, did such a good job that we're going to keep you in this work. In this yeah. World. So when, when they said that I, my heart was, was crushed. Now, I'm course. not saying the guys I worked with were bad because they were amazing people. Yeah. But, I immediately thought I, I got to do something. So a guy that I rode motocross with back in area J when we were in the mm-hmm. 82nd and during the Q course, he had had one of the recruiters from the unit come to my house and talk to me. And I told him, I said, well, I'm going to try this SF thing out first. And if it doesn't work out, then I'll try out for yeah. the unit. Yeah. And I really had no clue about any of that. Well, I, I made that call to him and within a week or two, I was getting interviewed at Fort Campbell, Kentucky, yeah, and then the rec- the uh, recruiter came and and administered the PT test and the psychological yeah. exam, which is pretty extensive for for our guys. And before I knew it, I was up in West Virginia going through selection, mm-hmm. and uh, I was very very young at the time, so that would have been I was born in '68, and that was '91. So you can do the math. I yeah. was just a a young pup. I mean, I didn't have well, I would have had milk on my mustache if I was old <laughs> enough to grow a mustache. That's right. You yeah. know what I mean? Um, you remember General Schoomaker? Of course. So General Schoomaker was in charge of the unit when yeah. I went through selection. And he said to me when they brought me back in to make the decision if I would go to OTC or not, uh-huh. he said, you're very young. So we're going to send you back to fifth group. And I, my heart just... I, th- I thought I was going to throw up because yeah. I'm thinking, oh, no. And he goes, what do you think about that? And I said, I'll do whatever you want me to do, sir. That's the right answer right there. And he that says, the good, we want to send question. you back to fifth group. 
We want you to recruit a couple guys, out process, come to Fort Bragg and go to OTC. And I'm like, on my heart was just yeah. doing cheetah flips by that I time. Bet. I was very excited. Yeah. And I was also, you know, nervous because most of the guys that I would be dealing with were much older than me. Yeah. So that was the fall of 91 that I went to the unit. I stayed there all but a year up until I retired. And, uh, you know, we did things, of course. We served sure. in, in Somalia together. Yeah. Um, Bosnia, I did a bunch of stuff there. I did five tours for the current war in Iraq. I never, mm-hmm. I never went to Afghanistan, but I'm not dead yet. Yeah. So you never know. For the listener who doesn't understand this, it is extremely unlikely to even get, uh, to make it through the, ex- the selection process to the unit because of your age. I mean, there's a degree of maturity and kind of military experience as well as life experience, but virtually everybody in the unit has been in the Army for 8, 10, 12 years. They're yeah. very seasoned guys. So if you show up as a 23, 24-year-old, uh, it's going to uh, it's gonna be a real challenge, not just for you, but for all of the guys that you're working with until you kind of get up to speed. So, you, 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 did you know Bobby Buma? Yes, of course. So Bobby was in my OTC class. My I went through OTC twice because I broke my leg going through uh-huh. OTC. And, or no, he was in my, now he might've been in the second one. Whatever, it doesn't yeah. matter. He was in OTC with me. So I remember he's, you know, he's a big, scary he dude. He is a mountain of a, the big Samoan mountain of a man. Kind of yeah, Dwayne yeah, Johnson looking man. Yeah, yeah. He's, he's, yeah, he's like a big, tough redneck dude, you know? And yep. everybody was kind of scared of that guy. And one day he started in on me and we weren't on the same, we weren't on the same yeah. OTC team or anything, but he started in on me and he goes, Lamb, how long you been in the army or whatever, something yeah. like that. And. I told him, he goes, how old are you? And he and he started just berating me like that. And mm-hmm. come to find out, he'd been in the Army, I think, eight years longer than me or something yeah, like that. Right. And I said to him, I said, well, Bobby, what that tells me is it took me eight years less time to get where you're at. Yeah, to figure out what you just figured out. And he became my buddy after that. All right. We, we never... I mean, we weren't not friends before that, but after that, he realized I wasn't going to take any crap. Yeah. I mean, that dude could rip my head off like nothing. But we we became good friends and we're still friends to yeah. this day. I haven't talked to him in a few years, but uh, yeah, it was it was uh, it was a good time. Well, Bobby, if you're listening to this podcast, both Kyle and I have the greatest respect for you. But <laughs> Kyle's right; he got there eight years faster than you did. I'm just saying, um, Kyle, you because of the unit that you served in, you really had a chance to go everywhere and do almost everything. Um, you and I saw each other on more than one battlefield, but I think the first time that we got connected and when I really learned to respect you as a fighter, a warrior, was serving together with you in Somalia. Um, so uh, the listeners are very familiar with my part in that that fight, but why don't you tell them a little bit about your role in that fight? Well, I would have said years ago, I said I was the lowest man on the totem pole or the second to the lowest. Then I found out I was corrected by a native american they said actually the lowest people are the most are the respected most so yeah. you were way up at the so top. i was way at the yeah. top of the totem pole there was one guy on our assault team that had less time there than than i did but i was i was a very new guy and i was just doing what i was told i wasn't i was on a team with john hale mm-hmm. earl fillmore and of course earl was killed on the third of october yeah. um 
on the the day in question, the day that that all the yeah. the real excitement right. happened. And and really for me, every mission we did was exciting because I didn't I didn't have a clue. I right. mean, I had a clue. I knew how to do my job, but I didn't I didn't know what it was like to be in a gunfight because I'd never that had never happened. I'd really? been shot at yeah. in when I was with fifth group, but they weren't shooting at me. They were yeah. shooting at everybody, you know? Right. So when Super Six One, they Super Six One was the bird that I was on. Mm-hmm. So after we had infilled and we got infilled in the wrong position, and John Hale started putting together like where we're at, where the yeah. actual target building is, and you you know pretty much everybody knows that story. But what when we finally got to that target building, then Super Six One was shot down, and it was our responsibility, and by our I mean your responsibility, yeah. my responsibility All to move ours. on foot to that crash site. And secure the crash site and do whatever we could to defend it, uh, treat the wounded, you know, whatever we needed to do. We didn't know what we are going to get into there. Uh, so we started fighting towards that. Well, actually, we started walking towards that crash site. And we turned to go north, of course. That's when things got crazy. Yeah. Um, I ended up being with uh, Woody Woodall as mm-hmm. we assaulted on the right side of the street. And your guys were still ahead of us. And one guy in particular was Jamie Smith. Yeah. So uh, Jamie Smith and I were, I, I probably wasn't close enough to touch him when he got shot, but I was right there close to him. So when he got shot, I was the first guy that started to provide first aid uh-huh. in the street there. And then um, Larry Perino, yeah. who was a lieutenant, I believe, at the time. That's right. And Woody Woodall, they pulled him behind cover. Chuck Elliott was there. He was pulling yeah. security. Oh, yeah. He ended up in the unit as well. And, uh, yeah, so we pulled, um, Jamie behind cover and we started working on him and that's pretty much, I mean, that's kind of the highlights for me right there. We, we worked on him. We couldn't, he had a, he was shot high in the femoral artery yeah. and you know all this, but yeah. for the listeners high in the femoral artery and his, his pelvic girdle had been shattered by that round as well. So the only way for us to slow the ble- bleeding was direct pressure. Yeah. So Woody and I kept rotating doing that. And when we weren't doing that, we were trying to help coordinate with the perimeter. And, you know, later in the evening, we moved Jamie inside. And when we did that, we Woody and I didn't, I'm not sure if Woody did. I never worked on him again just because then I had another responsibility that I had to do. But so that's where I spent my time. And then the next morning, once um, Cliff Walcott's body was able to be taken out of yeah. the aircraft, we started the exfil. And I mean, I guess I don't want to go down too much of that road but it was a it it was an enlightening experience I guess I hate to say a defining experience because I don't think that was defining I think for me more defining was what you do after that absolutely yeah and I think you and I have taken different paths um they're very parallel I agree yeah but but what we've done now, I think, is going to be, you know, my legacy isn't going to be that I was in Somalia yeah. and neither is yours. Right. If that's your legacy, you've got a really sad I life. Yes, I agree. If your legacy is your family, your children, and what you leave behind, then right. I think that's that's truly, um, that's where I'm at right now. I want to make sure I do I do right by not just my family, but, but even the people that I serve with. Yeah. I want to make sure that when they hear my name, they don't cringe. <laughs> and, uh, and hopefully they're not. Well, we're going to talk about the legacy that you're leaving um, in just a second. You mentioned two names that are 
to some degree pivotal in that fight in Somalia when Earl Fillmore is killed and he's killed almost instantly when he takes a round in the forehead. That was a wake up call to virtually everybody in the task force. Dominic Pilla took a round before that in the head, but I think most people, they didn't resonate with that one like when Earl Fillmore was killed because when Earl Fillmore was killed, everybody realized this is right in our face and it could be me. And if it can be Earl, it can be any of us at any second. So I think Earl's death was a real wake-up call for everyone in the force. But Jamie Smith's death was just brutal for all of us because although I never saw him after he took that round in the leg, we stayed, uh, we kept getting the reports on the radio of I was rolling in and out of the city streets. Um, and everybody else is still fighting the fight. But all of us are listening to the radio trying to get the status update on Jamie and a couple of other guys. And when we get the call 10, 30, 11 o'clock at night that Jamie has just bled out from lack of our ability to get him back to our surgeon, man, that was really, really rough because it felt like, OK, we're out here and we've got we're on our own and it's just us. Um and I had a bit of an advantage on you, Kyle, in that I went to Desert Storm with the Ranger Regiment. I went to Just Cause with the Ranger Regiment. I was in a firefighter too, nothing like Somalia, but you know, I was kind of prepared for for Somalia. Just the volume and the intensity was really was radically different than what I'd seen before. But what um I think one of the things that'll stick with me is the morning after the fight's over with and we all consolidate at that stadium the soccer stadium that the pakistanis are in yeah and i never made it there we yeah. went race we we drove straight back to the to the airfield and stopped at the end of the airfield uh -huh. and at that point john hale was telling us start loading your mags guys yeah, we're, we're probably gonna have to go back out because yeah. we're missing a couple snipers and i'm like you got to be kidding me you know what i mean yeah. but he had to put us back in the fight right as a leader i can't i mean i i led later in my career but at that point, I was <laughs> I was the little lamb, yeah, and I was yeah. following the John Hale. Lamb. I who, love it. Who was a, a stellar leader, yeah. an absolute amazing man, and uh, and what he'd been through. I don't know if you knew this, but the last time I saw Earl, Earl told Woody and I, he "says You guys go ahead," because by the time, that uh -huh. time we were bounding forward. Right. So we took off. I I stood up and took off running with Woody, and they were covering us. And then right after that's when Earl got killed. So I never, I didn't see that. I didn't know that until a radio call came across that John Hale said that Alpha Two, uh -huh. when when Cap uh, was Captain Miller, now General Miller yeah. or retired General Miller, said it was, you know, asked for the call sign and he said Alpha Two. That took the wind out yeah, of our man. sails, all of us. And I knew, or I should say, our team and and most of the guys in our squadron knew that. John Hale and, and Earl Fillmore were best friends. Yeah. So it's it's one thing to think about losing a soldier. And I don't want this to sound bad. I'm just going to say it the way I think it. I'm working on Jamie Smith. He's a ranger and I want him to live, yeah. but I don't know That's him. That's right. Yeah, totally agree. So I, I was able to separate myself a little bit from from his injury and and just try to stay in the fight and and, and take care of the first aid that, that he deserved. Um, but man, Earl, that just took the wit out of my sails. And that's, um, that's kind of when I realized I better start praying. Yeah. 
And uh, a lot of guys have asked me about that. I've, I've been a Christian most of my life, even though I've stumbled and fallen down a few times. Like me too. But I, when I was there, I didn't, up until that point in my life, I'm getting on a bowl to ride. Mm-hmm. I was praying. I'm jumping out of an airplane. I'm praying. I, I mean, there's a lot of praying that goes on when you're in those kind of environments. But in that environment, I realized we were going to get overrun. Yeah. That's really what I thought. Yeah. And my prayer changed and my prayer became, Lord, don't let me be a coward. Yeah. And after I was done with that, I I just, things were much better. Yeah. And I wasn't doing, there's, there's people that did heroic stuff in the streets that day. And I wasn't one of those guys. I was just one of those guys pulling my security on that piece of the pie that I needed to be yeah. at. But it was... Uh, yeah, it was an interesting time. Every uh, I will say, every guy who stayed in the fight, who didn't run away from the fight, um, and I'm not going to name names here, every guy who didn't run away from the fight was heroic that night. And um, like you, after losing Dominic Pilla, after coming to the point of realizing there is a 100% certainty I'm going to die, most of my men are going to die tonight, my prayers changed at that moment. And for the whole rest of the night, it was like, God, I don't want to do something as a leader that's going to cost another person their life. So whatever happens next, don't let it be my fault. The enemy does what the enemy is going to do. I don't have any control over that, but don't let it be my fault that somebody dies. And that was on my mind for the rest of the night. Yeah. And then fast forward, you know, to to Iraq when I'm over there as a troop sergeant major, it's it, it became a different. My communication was completely different. Yeah. Because I wasn't at that point, then I wasn't worried about myself anymore, and and it really was from Somalia on. I wasn't. That doesn't mean you still don't take cover when of you get course, shot at. Yeah. That just means that you don't you don't have that overbearing burden of death stalking you as yeah. you're on the battlefield. That's right. But I did have the burden of I wanted to make just like you said. I wanted the protection for my men, so that we. I, I don't mind a fair fight. But the thing that bothered me was at that point we were getting hit with a lot of IEDs. Yeah. And man, I just, you know, give us a fair fight. That's let right. us go toe to toe with the bad guys, but don't just let them blow us yeah. up as we're driving down the road. Yeah. I don't know if you and I were on that mission in Ramadi where, uh, you know, the the units coming in from one direction, we're coming in from the next. Everybody's getting hit with IEDs. And, and I'm like, this is just miserable because you got a <laughs> 90% chance of an IED attack on this route, 100% chance on this route. Let's take the 90% and see what yeah, happens. Yeah, yeah. Yep. Um, listen, you have a legendary career in the military. And I really mean this. When you and I saw each other on the battlefield in Iraq, um, I can't tell you enough how much your service to our country inspired me then, still inspires me now. But after you left the military, Kyle, your reputation, your uh, respect in the community, military and law enforcement, it went through the roof. It was already uh, exceptionally high before this. So what was the uh, motivating factor to start Viking Tactics? I don't have any other skills. <laughs> okay. I really, I, and I, I okay, I, I can talk to people. I can write pretty well. You know, I've written three books, so that's something I've, I've kind of, I don't know, I aspired to do. So for me, if I think I can do something, I'm just going to do it. I don't know about you, but when I want to do something, I just, 
I just do it. So I told my wife, she goes, what are you going to do when you retire? And I said, I'm going to teach people to shoot. She goes, yeah, seriously, what are you going to do when you retire? And I said, I, I, I really, that's what I want to do. Yeah. And I was shooting a lot of competitions at the time uh -huh. and I was a pretty decent shooter. So, uh, he just said pretty decent. Uh, he's, he's underselling himself <laughs> to the listener by a mile. So what I started to do every time I took leave, I went and taught a class somewhere. So I might really? fly to, I'd fly to California and I'd teach a class and then I'd fly back. Wow. And, and that's what I did. Not for my, moonlighting for extra money. You just loved it that much that you spent your free time doing it. No, I was doing it to make money. Okay. I mean, I was getting paid. I sure, wasn't getting paid what I get yeah. paid now, but I was getting paid to do that. And I, I quickly realized a, a few things. First of all, the law enforcement guys I was training and the military guys I was training, they needed our help severely yeah. with their shooting skills. And, and even then, some and, of it was just what equipment they And they, they needed had. it far more than they knew they needed it. You knew right. how much they needed it. They didn't realize how much they needed it. Well, the other thing I quickly realized was that I'm not a law enforcement guy. Right. And I don't speak law enforcement ease. And they, a lot of the law enforcement guys, specifically some of the SWAT guys, they wanted to, they really wanted to question everything I did and everything I said. And I'm thankful for that because what it allowed me to do is it allowed me to rewrite my message to yeah. them. Yeah. So when I showed up, I gave them the message that they needed to hear. Not what I wanted to tell them, but what they needed to right. hear so we yeah. could get past all of the peeing on the corners mm -hmm. and and get right down to, you know, the nuts and bolts of training. So that didn't happen before I got out of the military. That happened later on. So yeah. by the time I got out of the Army, I had 42 weeks booked for my first year when I got out of the military. Your first year of retirement and you have 42 of the 52 weeks of the year already booked up? booked up to be on the range. Wow. Now that doesn't mean I'm working 42 five, uh, yeah. seven day right. weeks. I'm not doing that. But I might have three or four days every week on the range. Some days, five days on the range. Some days, you know, two weeks straight or whatever. Well, that's what really helped us. I hit I hit that at the perfect time. Yeah. Because I was a, I, I was a good instructor so I could go and do one class, which led to two classes, which went, uh -huh. led to four to eight to whatever. And before I know it, I was booking two years in advance. And that allowed me as a, as a driven person to just say, okay, relax. That's right. You got this. All you got to do is work. Now it, th there was, there weren't many days off and I wasn't taking vacations. I wasn't doing all that. And then the other side of it was my wife was running the business. So she's the CEO of ETAC. She's doing all of our shipments. And at that yeah. time, the shipments wow. were nothing. Yeah. Well, our product sales now are 80 to 90% yeah, of I was our business. Say, let's be honest. Your gear is every, everybody's sporting your gear. They're wearing it somewhere. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and the, and the cool thing about it is, you know, when, when some of these players on the ground were captured or killed, there was probably a VTAC sling there. Uh-huh. I mean, I can guarantee that with, you know, somebody like, Bin Laden, um, Zarqawi, uh -huh. you know, their our equipment was there, so that's that's pretty cool too. But so after that first year, at that point, I I just kept working very hard, and and not up until COVID did it really hit me 
how hard I'd been working. And COVID hit. COVID is the best thing that ever happened to well, my wife I and I. I hope everybody heard you say that. My wife and I have been married. It'll be 37 years in next week. And uh, we had never spent that much time together. I mean, we I'd never been, I'd never spent like three months in a row yeah. with my with my wife in, in my entire life, you know? And all of a sudden COVID starts, we got the grandkids, we keep them for seven weeks straight. Mm -hmm. And I quit traveling to teach. I'm only, I went to places in the United States where there was no COVID, you know, like yeah. Iowa, right. <laughs> there was no COVID there. So I went yeah. there in Texas, a few other places, but our business doubled and I didn't travel. Wow. So we did twice as much business and I didn't travel. And that's when the clue bird flew over and took a dump on my head. And I said, <laughs> I don't need to be on yeah, the range. You don't need to wear yourself out like this. Yeah. And the other thing too, is I'm, I'm 55 years old now and it, it does take a little bit more recovery when you get injured on the range. Yeah. So that first year that I was on the range, um, I got to the end of the year, I couldn't hardly pick up a cup of coffee. I had tendonitis so bad from all the shooting and, and everything. So I take a lot better care of myself now than I did when I was in the military. And if I'm at home, I'm, I eat better and sleep yeah. better and, and do all that. So yeah, so Viking Tactics, it, it's, it's uh, I don't say this very often, but I'll say it now. I am very proud of what we've done yeah. with Viking Tactics because we don't go out and slander other people to build our brand. Right. We just do our thing. And you can either get on with us or not. Right. It doesn't matter to yeah. me. We're busy. I mean, I'm not saying that to be disrespectful to people. Hey, there's a lot of great trainers. Go train with all yeah. of them. Yeah, yeah. And I just hope we're on your list of people that sure. you want to train with. And then, you know, buy eight or 10 VTAC slings and we'll be happy. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll just say this for the listener who doesn't run in military and law enforcement circles. Viking Tactics is the most respected name in in shooting, uh, you know, tactics, shooting stuff in the world, in the circles that I'm in. And it's it's not just you, Kyle. It's the whole brand that you guys have created, you and Melinda I really and, appreciate uh, you, you saying that. You should be that. very proud of it because there is not one other brand out there that is more respected than Viking Tactics. That's That means a lot, man. Thank you. And obviously, you paid the penalty uh, those first few years of building that brand if you can't even lift up a cup of coffee because for a guy who takes an espresso machine with him on a deployment... Oh, my goodness. ...like you do... Uh, that's a big deal where you can't lift a cup of oh, coffee. I can't believe you brought that up. That's Heck hilarious. Yeah. That is awesome. Yeah, we were, we, you know, funny, funny you say that because it's true, obviously. Yeah. Um, I took an espresso machine and I took several pounds of coffee. This guy is serious about his coffee. And then years later, I meet this guy named Evan Hafer from Black Rifle Coffee. He's uh -huh. like, Hey man, are you into coffee? And I'm like, bro, am I into <laughs> am coffee? Am I into coffee? <laughs> yeah. So he he and I have become good friends along with Matt Best. Yeah. I knew Jared before any of those guys, but uh now we do a blend with Black Rifle Coffee, yeah. the Berserker blend and Uh-huh. That's funny, man. Yeah, we guys uh the the every not everybody, but several people started bringing espresso machines with them on their deployments after I brought that little tiny Uh-huh. like $30 one from yeah. Walmart, you know. Well, just so that you know, you can tell those guys from Black Rifle, I'm right there with you. I had a coffee machine in the chapel in Afghanistan. It's I'm sleeping in the same building with it. And it became literally the go-to spot in the entire yeah. camp. The whole special yep. operations camp went to Commons Memorial Chapel to get some of that espresso, the espresso beans and the espresso machine. 
that's in the in the chapel. And uh, this is early in Afghanistan. And so I spent the last 10 years, I ruined myself on coffee is basically what happened and spent the last 10 years trying to perfect a good cup of coffee in yeah. Afghanistan. Hey, so let me ask you a question about that. Yeah. Do you remember the last cup of coffee you had while you were serving? Uh, no. So I had a, I had a, a, a special thing happen to me. I was in Iraq. Now I shouldn't say the last cup of coffee I had while I was serving. It's the last cup of coffee I had that I remember while I was deployed to combat. I think I can remember the last cup of coffee I had in, in a combat zone. Yes. So I was in Iraq and I was at um, Balad. And at my last tour, I was the CSM for our task force. Mm -hmm. I wasn't a CSM, but I was in the CSM position. I was a SAR major, but not a CSM. And I remember the day that I was getting ready to fly out of there, I went over to the Army Chow Hall there and I walked in and I could smell that burnt coffee. <laughs> really bad coffee. And I, I got a cup of it in one of those little crappy uh -huh. cups they had, the little disposable cups. And I sat down and I got to tell you, that's one of the best cups of coffee. It's, it's burnt. It's, it's like black. It would hold yep. your fork up that's in it. Right. I mean, yep. but that was the coffee that we knew when we come back from that's a mission, right. yep. you could go to the chow hall. There was always that coffee. That's right. And it's, it's, uh, it's different. I've never had that coffee anywhere other than yeah. an army chow hall yeah. and that cup of coffee. I, I hope, I hope I never forget about that. I probably will someday, but I mean, it's as if I'm drinking that right now. It's it was burnt, but it was hot, and I yeah. I savored every bit of it. You're bringing back some memories of drinking coffee out of a canteen cup with Rick Merritt, and I will never forget how terrible that coffee was. <laughs> but it absolutely hit the spot. Um, I'd take another cup of it right now just because of how <laughs> desperately I needed it. Yeah, <laughs> that's awesome. Um, Hey, after leaving the military, you are very successful with Viking tactics, but you, like me, and honestly, everybody that you and I know, uh, Kyle, we go through a little bit of separation anxiety. You've already talked about, you know, missing the camaraderie or uh, um, another thing that I think most of the guys and gals that we serve with struggle with is not having a really defined mission after you leave the military or law enforcement. How do you help? coach people through that one right now well it's funny you say that because that's what i continually tell people is you got to have a mission i don't care what that mission is yeah. i mean i started forging about three years ago so i forged tomahawks and knives what look beat at them you. out of a piece of steel i also make yeah. some that i just cut out of steel that i don't forge but i started doing that because I, I always wanted to do it and my son and i had an opportunity to go to a class in ohio yeah. uh, close to chillcothy where Daniel Boone was rolled up by wow. the Indians. Yeah. And that's a mission. So if I have a mission to make a tomahawk today or to make a knife or to, you know, to work on something like that, that's a mission. Your mission might be to go fishing. Your mission might be to run a business, whatever it is, I would say have a mission. So first of all, you got to define what is a mission. Yeah. A mission is something you prepare for. So if you prepare for it, what does that mean? You got to think about it before you go do it. And I think mm -hmm. that that's, if your mental health is important to you, you need to have a mission. If every day you get up and you go, oh, well, what am I going to do today? You're, you're a failure. You failed already. If you go to bed the night before and you're like, hey, tomorrow, this is what I'm going to do. And I got to prepare. What do I need here? What do I need there? What, you know, what kind of fishing lures am I going to take? What steel am I going to need to make this 
tomahawk? You know, what classes am I teaching? Um, who am I going to go help or whatever? That to me is is one of the most important. But the other thing I believe that has become more important to me, and I as I've done this, I've and my wife was the one that really drove this point home to me. What have you done for somebody else? Yeah. Because I promise you, and and anybody out there that's listening or watching or whatever, and if you if you know me, you know I I say this all the time. Get up in the morning and do something for somebody else. That yeah. doesn't mean you got to do work. It doesn't mean you got to go mow their lawn. Right. But if you reach out to somebody and say, "Hey, man, I'm just thinking about you," you 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 have just made somebody's That's day. Right. Yeah. And if you sm- it's even better if you do it for somebody that you don't even know. And the good thing about that, and and we lose track of this. And I I catch myself looking at myself and thinking, "Oh, woe is me! I'd got oh this bag of gold is this too heavy?" Uh-huh. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah. But when I when I look outwardly and I take care of somebody else or help somebody else, my cup gets filled up. Yeah. And those are the two things that I would say. Have a mission. I don't care what that mission is. Have a mission. And then the second thing is take care of, yeah. of other people, I, however that is. I totally agree. And for the guys that are out there, guys and gals that are out there struggling after leaving, you know, uh, law enforcement, leaving the military, not only do you have to have a mission, but that mission needs to make it. You need to know deep in your soul that you're making a difference with it. And one of the things that made it, uh, that gave you and I the energy to go make incredible sacrifices is you knew what you were doing is making a difference, making a difference for our country, making a difference for somebody else. The world is a better place because of what we're doing. As, as dangerous, deadly, as violent as it is, the world is a better place because of what we're doing. And I want to add to Kyle's statement, you need to get up tomorrow with a very specific mission and you need to know in every fiber of your being that tomorrow you're going to make a difference. Maybe it's just a difference in one person's life, like you said, with a text message. Yeah, and I think if if you if you sit there and think about something you, bad that happened 20 years ago, 10 years ago, yeah. three days ago, it's it, that's not going to come out well. Right. It's just not. You got to put your mind in a different place. And the way to do that is if you have that mission, for example, if I decide I don't know how to do brass inlay on a handle of a tomahawk, Mm -hmm. it's, well, you know me, I got the same attention span as a squirrel, but I can take a piece of wood and a tiny little piece of brass that's been flattened and I can work to inlay that into a handle for three hours. And I have no idea that time has went by. Because my brain goes to a different place. And that's why when I, when I forged, the very first time I forged with my son, I was staring into this fire. And at the end of the day, I'm like, I didn't think about anything but that piece that's of right. metal. Yeah. Now, it's good to think about other things sometimes, but sometimes it's good to clear your mind. Yeah. And that the, the making knives and doing that or welding or whatever it might be, uh, that's that really, really helps me oh, out. Yeah. And then people, they what's been funny is they, they can't get my knives. They, they want to buy them. And I have some friends, some friends that are pretty well off and, and they're funny offering you they, an outrageous amount of money for a knife, right? Yeah. And I'm like, no, they're not for sale. And they're like, well, what do you mean they're not for sale? And I go, well, you know, Craig Morgan, yeah, right? Right. So Craig is a friend of mine. He lives down the road from me and, uh, 
he invited me to come over to do a podcast, something with him, their video. By the it. way, I just saw him. We were together at the 82nd. I, I, I didn't realize that he served in the 82nd. He's a, he is a good man. Yeah. He is an unbelievable dude. Good Christian guy. Yeah. Good family. I knew dude. he had just some a, time in the military and he went to just cause. I didn't know it was in the 82nd. I thought he was with the Rangers in the 80, in Just Cause. Well, I don't know, but he did spend some time in the 82nd. Okay. So we saw right. each well, other was, there. He was with Rangers as well. as a, I think he was like a Ford Observer yeah. or something. So uh, I, I show up and I have a, a tomahawk that I made. And it was kind of a dainty. It was a beautiful tomahawk. My wife did the handle. I made the handle, but she... She, uh, she made it beautiful. Let's maple. just be on it. You made it. She made it beautiful. Right. She made it absolutely gorgeous. Right. And then I inlaid this, I was going to inlay a snake into it, but I inlaid an arrow instead. So I had an arrow that went curly Q up uh -huh. the handle and then there was the point and then there was the fletching at the bottom. And I did that as brass inlay. It's the very first brass inlay I did on something I made. I had practiced brass inlay on a piece of wood. Well, he looks at it and he goes, how much for this? And I go, it's not for sale. And he, it killed him because he's like, what do you mean it's not for sale? Yeah. And I go, well, it's, it's not for sale. So we sit down, we talk for an hour and he hits me up again. I was like, yeah, it's too bad. You can't get that tomahawk yeah. or whatever, you know? <laughs> so we get done and, and he has me lay out some tomahawks and knives on this table and they're videoing them. And he leans over to me and he goes, seriously, how much for the tomahawk? And I said, Craig, I'm just going to be honest with you. When I made that tomahawk and I finished it, I don't care whatever happens to that tomahawk. Because mentally, I got what I wanted yeah. by making and creating and, and doing that. And then maybe that sounds a little goofy, no. but it's truly yeah. how I feel. And I said, but let me make a deal with you. I said, my wife and I, and he knows my wife very well. I said, we started an organization called the Stay in the Fight Foundation. And he had, we had talked about uh -huh. that on the podcast. I said, you make a donation to the Stay in the Fight Foundation, and I'll give you that tomahawk tell you what he wrote a check wow. that made my cowboy boots fall yeah. off <laughs> and i i was happy to see that tomahawk yeah, gone at that were. point but that's the he is the very first person that did that and after that my wife goes well that sounds like a great way that's to get smart. rid of all these yeah. knives you're that's making that's right yeah because we're not so, going to leave them laying around the kitchen yeah yeah because we, we there's there's a bunch of them so what what's the other thing that's really been cool about this is Guys ask me, they go, how much? And I tell them, that's up to you. Yeah. And then I then I get to see what's the decision-making process right. that they go yeah. through there. And I one of the other things I tell them, I go, I, I would prefer if it hurt a little bit. And it hurts more if you're poor mm -hmm. and you give $100 than if you're rich and you give $1,000. Yeah. So I've had guys that have given me $200 or $100 or what. I don't care. Yeah. I honestly don't care. Yeah. I want you to give what you can because it's going to go to help people. Yeah. And then you can have your knife. You can take it. And I don't, you know, I'm, and I don't want to sound negative, but I, I'm done with it at yeah, that point. Right. So yeah, we've had guys, I, I've, uh, you wouldn't believe the kind of money that some guys have given me for knives for the stay in the fight foundation. Well, I want to compliment you, man. I married my high school sweetheart. I had been in the army for a couple of years, but she and I met right before I joined. I'm still married to her. 
I don't know a whole lot of my buddies, me, uh, you, me, and a few others that are still married to the woman that we were with before the military, early on in the military. And you and Belinda have been going strong for 37 years, an entire career, the business together, all of it. Man, that's inspiring. And I tell people, listen, my wife Dawn and I, we don't have anything special, but if we can pull this one off, you can pull it off. Um, you just got to have a, a radical commitment to this thing, to marriage. Yeah, and I think w- when when young folks ask me, they're like, well, but how do you get through? Like, I mean, man, sometimes I fight with my wife and I'm like, Heck fighting yeah, you is do. awesome. Yeah. Because when it's over, well, there's, you know, there's the makeup hanky, hanky happens. Yeah. But... <laughs> But the other thing is you, you, when the fight is over, it's got to be over. Right. It's, you just got to move on. And my wife and I, we, my wife is the strongest person I've ever met. Of course. If she's put up with you and all of those deployments, she has to be. (laughs) Yeah. So when, when I look at how she acts, she's, she's got my best interest in mind. And that's the other thing. There's other people around me that May not may not have yeah. my best interest in mind, but I know one hundred percent that my wife is on my side, yeah. and I always want to make sure she understands that as well. And and here's something we just talked to our son about this. I picked my wife over my children, of course. And and maybe that sounds horrendous, but no, it sounds she, right she, to me. Not horrendous. Yeah, she it sounds is. Right. We are evenly yoked, and we're in this together. And and that's all there is. That doesn't mean that I've been easy to get along with. Yeah. It doesn't mean that our marriage hasn't had some rocky spots, mm-hmm. but we fought and we've kept it together. And I hope that we can do it for another 50 years. And you know? I hope the listener who's hearing you is saying, wait a second, if Kyle and Melinda can pull this one off, if Jeff and Don can pull this one off, maybe we can pull this one off. It's not easy. Let's be honest. But if two regular guys like us um, can do this, then maybe a listener who's struggling uh, has the courage to stay in there and not give up. Yeah, definitely don't give up. I mean, it's 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 absolutely worth fighting yeah. for. Um, I want to wrap up by talking about Stay in the Fight Foundation. So right before we started recording this, you said something I repeated, never really said this publicly, um, but I'll say it now. Um There are many, many military charities out there. They do a lot of very specific things. And to be honest to the listener, there are not five of them, not five, that I feel totally comfortable with. I can tell you, I can list for you 5,000 military charities, and there's not five of them that I'm completely comfortable with. So I just don't partner with them because I'm not completely comfortable with them. You and Melinda started the Stay in the Fight Foundation, and I really want people to understand why you started it, what it's designed to accomplish. And actually, what I'm going to do is ask some people that are listening to make a donation or to support the Stay in the Fight Foundation because of what you guys are doing. So why did you start it? What did you want to accomplish with it? So my wife had a, a back injury, and she was in severe pain, and she could barely walk, couldn't stand up straight. Um... That happened on a Saturday, and on Monday I took her in to the to the doctor. Mm-hmm. She didn't have a she didn't even have an appointment, but they took one look at her and they're like, "Get her in right now." So they get her in there and they 
they take an x-ray and the doc, I go in to see the doctor and he goes, the soonest I can get you into surgery is one week from today. And I'm like, whoa, doc. Because I'm thinking he's he's making a too quick of a decision. Yeah. And he goes, let me tell you, if we don't fix this right now, we may never be able to fix her leg. She may uh -huh. have trouble with that leg for the rest of her life. And I'm like, Roger that. Yeah. So we go home and it's hard to see your wife not able to move and in severe pain. And, and she was taking some narcotics for this. So a week later, I take her in. Uh, they put the funny hat on her. Uh -huh. They're giving her the IV. And the nurse comes in and says, well, we're not going to do the surgery today because your, uh, your great military insurance yeah. was denied. Oh. Well, my wife looked at me and she still was, I mean, she's in pain. Uh -huh. And she goes, go down to the truck. My checkbook is in the center console of my truck. I'm like, Roger that. So I scamper downstairs. They put her on hold. Mm -hmm. They don't kick her out. And I go in there and I said, all right, how much yeah. for the surgery? $14,000. I write a check for $14,000. Wow. And then they say, go over to that. Over here, it's for, for the... Uh, for everything else, right? Yeah, for, yeah. Um, what do you call it? The anesthesiologist, yeah. $800. Or so I write these checks and I give them to, her, to them. And I don't, I, honestly, I don't think anything of uh -huh. it because I had the money. So if we have the money, I'm, I would... I would pay anything to fix yeah. my wife. So I give him the money. My wife goes into surgery and one hour, one hour after she come out of surgery, she was walking Wow! and she was pain free. Wow! And this was a severe lower back, wow. you know, yeah. impinged nerve yeah. and it was crazy. So we go home and my wife is in this funk because she took those narcotics for a week and she won't take any other pain meds mm -hmm. while she's healing up. But it took her two months to kind of get out of this, whatever yeah. that did to her. So at the end of two months, she says, I've been thinking about this a lot for the last two months. And she goes, I want to start a 501c3. And I'm like, oh my goodness, what they did they take half yeah, her brain what out did or what those did they drugs do? do to you? Yeah. And I go, a 501c3. And she goes, I kind of shook my head because we'd had all these experiences and, and it just made us sick to our stomachs yeah. that they would parade one of my friends across uh -huh. the stage that's jacked up and that all these people would give all this money and he would never see a penny that's of right. that. Yep. And, and I don't need the money. I, I, I don't want anything. I'm trying to help this dude that is missing a leg or missing an arm or missing his eyes or whatever. And, uh, and part of it is you're just, you're up there to try to help and you feel like you're doing the right thing. And I said, oh, you want to start a 501c3? Um, and I don't want to upset her. <laughs> I'm like, oh, honey, well, tell me about this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And she says, well, here's the deal. It's going to be for anybody that's a human being. It's not military or law enforcement. It's anybody that's a human. And I'm like, okay. I'm intrigued. Yeah, broad category. And she said, you got to have a job um, and we'll pay the bill one time. We'll help one time. This isn't something we're not going to do. We're uh -huh. not going to pay for 10 things. We'll pay for one thing. And we get that invoice, we pay it, and then we move to the next person. And it's interim interim care yeah. while they figure out right. a plan. So eventually, I guess it was probably six months, seven months later, we got reimbursed for the for what we had done. 
But the reason that this stuck with her so badly was because let's go back to when you're an E5. Yeah. You never had $14,000 in the bank. I was a enlisted guy and getting food stamps from the government while I was still on active duty because we couldn't afford, you know, the food for our children. Yeah. When I got out of the military, I don't know what we had in the bank, but I don't know that it was, it wasn't over $20,000. We didn't have, we, we just didn't have a lot of money. So what, what inspired her was that if we could help somebody get over that hump without them saying, Hey, here's a soldier or here's a civilian, go take these narcotics for a year until you get approval. Because by that time they're either going to be addicted to it or Uh they're going to kill themselves. One of the two is going to happen. So that was, so those, those things happen. And then she, I said, what else? And she said, well, I'm not going to do this and I don't want to do it unless 100% of what we take in goes to help people. And I'm like, 100%, how are we going to yeah, do that? how's the she math goes, on that work? She goes, it's very simple. She goes, any admin fees will be paid by you and I or Viking Tactics, not by Stay in the Fight Foundation. There won't be, we're not, if we print something, Viking Tactics pays for it. Uh-huh. If we ship something, v, VTAC pays for it. So, every, you know, like when I buy the steel to make a knife, we don't buy that with Stay in the Fight. We, yeah. I buy that with my own money. I make a knife and I'd say, here's the knife. And then you get, you know, whatever for it. And, and there we go. So I want to tell you a, a couple of stories of what happened yeah. because it's pretty cool. So I'm out and I'm out in, uh, with 10 special forces group uh-huh. doing a class. And there's a guy in the class that who's, he's a, a very good friend of mine. So he had severe TBI and he went to get TBI treatment with the football team in Denver. Okay. Well, they said you got to have these supplements in order to treat this TBI. Well, the military said they wouldn't pay for one of the supplements Mm -hmm. because the military, they're so bright when it comes to (laughs) how to take care of people, you know what I'm saying? And, uh, I, I, I'm on, I'm driving to the range. I'm out in the middle of Fort Carson. I call her, I go, Hey, uh, I told her the guy's name and she's like, Oh, Hey, how's he doing? You know? And I said, well, he needs like $1,200 for this supplement. And she goes, well, that's simple. Send me the invoice. So sent the invoice. We paid for it. He got his supplement and he's doing spectacular. Awesome. There were other things the military was yeah, doing to help right. him, yeah. but that was one additional thing. Yeah. Okay. So that's cool. It's a guy. No, it, it, it hit close to home. So then we get a call from a guy. He's an E5 or an E6. I don't remember specifically, but military dude, army guy. He says, uh, you probably can't help me, but it's worth a shot for my All little right. girl. Okay, right away, he's a GI, so I've got a warm uh-huh. spot in my heart. He's an enlisted guy, so I got even a bigger like warm me, spot in my heart. Got a big soft spot for him. Yep. And he's trying to take care of his kid. Yeah. What would you do for your child? Hopefully, the answer is you would do anything. I would saw my right arm off or give my life. Yes. W- whatever you have to do right. for your child. So, once again, let's go back to the Army system. Their daughter has a soft spot in her head. Mm hmm. There's two choices. One is you buy a helmet and that soft spot goes away. The other choice is the army choice. And the army choice is this girl that is less than three years old is going to go in and have her head cut open and they're going to fix her skull. And that's traumatic. Yeah, It's not just traumatic for the child. That's traumatic for the mom and the dad. And this helmet's three, $4,000, whatever it is. Uh Uh-huh. Boom, there's the helmet. Go do it. And that's what that's about. Wow. Because if it wouldn't have been for, for Stay in the Fight Foundation, 
I promise you that that poor soldier, and I don't mean poor like I feel sorry for him. I mean poor, poor like, like he can't ain't got any money. The helmet. Poor. Yeah, yes. he can't afford that. We were the answer to their prayer. Yeah. And we don't want anything from it. We, we're not going to make him a poster child. Right. We're not going to do any of that. We send the money and it's done. And then the other thing too is what we had to realize because not everybody that calls you is honest. Uh-huh. Our job is to do what we can do. What they do with the money, and that's why we pay the invoice. We don't give it to the person. Right. If they do something wrong with that, that's that's not on us. We're trying to do the yeah. right thing, so we do the best that we possibly can. And I don't think we've had that happen very often. But you know, some of the people you do talk to are a little bit a little bit sketchy. Yeah. And, and then you and I also talked about some of the professional veterans yeah. that are taking advantage of the system, and the people that really need the help then can't become part of the system to get whatever they need help with. Yeah. So that's what we're doing. And I feel every, uh, every chance I get, I try to, you know, ask my wife, like, what, what, what are we, cause I don't know who we're helping. And she's like, well, this lady, you know, she was abused and now we're paying her first and last month's rent All so right. she can get out of her awesome. house. And, it, and that's it. We're done. Yeah. And that lady can have a little leg up and then yeah. get back about her life. And, We've had some crazy requests, and uh, my wife can immediately know if somebody's lying or not, which has been tough for me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but uh, she she quickly knows if if they're truthful or not, yeah. and if they need help, you know, we'll uh, definitely help them. So for the people that are listening, if you have people, if you we work with a lot of military and law enforcement folks, and they're around people that need help, and yeah. that's where a lot of sure. this comes from. So if you want to make a donation, that's fine. We would appreciate that. But if you know somebody that needs help, just reach out to Stay in the Fight Foundation. Go to vikingtactics.com. Click on the Stay in the Fight Foundation tab at the top. It'll give you all that information. If you want to donate, there was a guy, and I can't remember his name, but he was in Somalia with us. He was one of the pilots. And uh, it's on our website. I think you got to put it in $100 increments or something mm -hmm. like that to donate. And he went in there, just kept putting in increments. <laughs> and that really, that hit my heart. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. this is a guy that's one of us. And he saw that and he said, I'm going to put in thousands of dollars yeah. Yeah. in $100 increments. So that was, that's, that's awesome. Yeah. I'll just tell the listener, um, I don't have, a, I have less than one hand, the amount of military charities that I really respect and don't have any uncomfortable feelings about, I would absolutely suggest if you are interested in helping people that are in need, definitely send them to stay in the Fight Foundation. But I would also tell the listener, maybe you know somebody who's struggling. Um, listen, there is I cannot think of another military charity that has zero overhead, that 100% of what comes in goes out to help people. And if you wanted nothing, if you knew nothing else than that, that's all you need to know about um, Kyle and Melinda's art on this one. So if you know somebody that's struggling um, and you want to send them that way, we'll put in the notes to this episode where you can find Stay in the Fight Foundation and the link to Viking Tactics. But go this for is it. a God thing. Last year, the amount of money we took and the amount of money that went out were within 10 cents of each other. Ooh. Wow. So it's that just, yeah. that, that speaks to me. Yeah. Um, we don't do fundraisers because we don't, 
no, we're not going to do that. Yeah. We we just tell people, and if you want to donate, great. If you need help, great. Yeah. Either person will 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 entertain either one of right. you there. So if you want a knife, you got to yeah. you're going to have to say, you know, I don't take orders. Donation. So if That's you want right. one of these knives, you have yeah. to make a uh, make a. Uh, can, can I tell you one more story, real yes, quick? Yes, of course. But by the way, if you want a knife, it's going to need to hurt a little bit. <laughs> yeah. So I was uh, I was up I was up in New Hampshire. And I was teaching at SIG Academy, uh-huh. and I saw this guy in the range, and he's a big guy. And I couldn't tell if he was Middle Eastern or Mexican or what he was. He's a big dude with not white skin. Yeah. Okay, so he's got a bit of a good tan there going. Big, big guy. His fingers are like kielbasas. I mean, this is a <laughs> big dude. So I, I, I hear him over there loading, and he's talking to the other guys. And he just towers above everybody. And he says something about growing up in Egypt. And I'm like, well, man, I speak colloquial yeah, well, Egyptian I was Arabic. Gonna say, Here goes my language skills. I'm going to like, oh, man, now if I can just remember like five words, <laughs> this is going to be amazing. So um, and it's funny. We, we joke about this now. But one of the words I had to learn when I was going through Arabic language school was which means anti-tank and he mm-hmm. laughs and laughs at that when i when he sees me that he'll just say yeah. that and okay. we laugh and laugh because it's like the most useless word right, you could right. ever learn and it took us two weeks to yeah. learn this stupid word so we get on the line shooting and i wait till the next break i'm trying to put together how do i say something to this guy in egyptian arabic because by this time now i've learned some modern standard uh-huh. because iraq and kuwait and all the areas we've been to, Saudi Arabia, wherever. So he goes back over to load again, and I just kind of wander over there, load my magazine, and I lay down the finest Egyptian Arabic I can, and he stops and he looks at me, and the rest of the class looks at me like, what did you just yeah, say? Right. And he's like, you just spoke Egyptian Arabic. And I'm like, yeah, <laughs> that's pretty cool. He recognized it, you uh-huh. know. And of course, he's Egyptian, so he's going to recognize it. So he and I started to become become friends. And um, the part that's interesting about that is he's he's Muslim. So of all my travels, I haven't had very good interactions with Muslims because they have been the people we've been yeah, fighting usually. Mm-hmm. And this guy, I meet him, and and he and I have become very close friends awesome and he has he has explained to me what being a muslim means to him what islam mm-hmm. means to him and it it isn't about it isn't the ideology of going and blowing yourself up or killing americans or white people or people with a certain color eyes or women or anything like that and that doesn't mean we agree on everything but he has made my heart soften yeah as it should because in our book it says we should love our That's neighbor right. it doesn't say love your neighbor if they're a christian right. it says love your neighbor and that he has been a, a an absolute inspiration for me and it, it's helped me to learn more about islam too you know they believe in jesus yeah. they don't believe in the trinity but they they're they have some beliefs that are similar to our beliefs so we we talk about that so fast forward um, I make some steel for a knife and I make this knife. It's um, three layers of 1084 and two layers of nickel. And I 
I make sand my, so I weld it around the mm -hmm. edges, then I heat it up super hot, and I forge weld it together. I make the steel, and my buddy Alan Elishwitz makes this beautiful dagger. So I, I call up Sharif, and I said, hey, man, I'm going to send you a picture. So I send him the picture. He's like, oh, that's beautiful. And he, I said, hey, man, if you want, I just want to check if you wanted that knife. I, I want you to have that knife if you want to have it, but you're going to have to make a donation uh -huh. and stay in the Fife Foundation. And I wasn't, I wasn't pushing him for yeah, the donation. Sure. I just, I wanted him to have one right. of my knives and it, it, because of our friendship, but just to make that like a, a, a real deal, make a donation. Well, he sent me a check and the check was not what I was expecting. It was many times what I was expecting. Wow. But in there, he also put a letter and you don't know what you're doing for people yeah. just by being their friend. Right. You don't know what kindness is doing to that person. Yeah. But that letter he wrote me was, it was, it was worth a million dollars. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So I guess the point of that is you, you, you know, go out there and treat people with kindness yeah. and, and, and do the right thing for them. And it, it will come back to, to fill your cup up as well. So yeah, Sharif and I are buddies. Um, he ended up sending a, a 22 rifle for my grandson. My wow. grandson started shooting a 22 yeah. and he just loves it. And, and Sharif's like, yeah, we, I need an FFL. I'm going to send you this gun. Yeah. So I get this gun. My grandson doesn't, I tell my grandson, this is for my buddy Sharif. And I start telling uh -huh. about him. And I go, Hey Denver, should we, uh, let's do a video for Sharif. He goes, grandpa, let's just call him on the phone. So he calls up and my nine-year-old grandson has a conversation with this Egyptian dude, and it was just amazing. Wow. Yeah. So it's it's the the world is an awesome place yeah. if you just you know treat people. And having the the ability to say anti tank mine in Egyptian Arabic and, helps. Yeah, yeah. You know, who knows where that's yeah. going to go? Yeah. Yeah. The other day I ran into him and I said, "Etel uh, and he goes, "Your television is out of order." And I go, "Yeah. What do you think?" And he's like. Why would you tell me that? And I said, because I learned it. That's just right, so I because tell that's you all that. I know to say right now. <laughs> Man, uh, Kyle, I can't tell you from your time in the military, from Viking Tactics and from the Stay in the Fight Foundation, how much I respect you. It's been a joy to have you on this episode. And please tell your wife how proud we are of what you two are both doing for just making the world a better place and having a mission to, uh, to make a difference. The last thing is, I am going to send you that book for you to uh, peruse. All right, and I'm going to look through. Yeah, <laughs> war stories and from the Bible. Yeah, I want to get make sure that I'm good with uh, with you as a man of the cloth, and I've got a couple other guys that I'm going to do the same thing with, and and hopefully that'll be a success as well because a lot of people have been asking me about it. I've been working on that for a good bit. Yeah. But uh, I also want to get you on my podcast when you get sure, a chance. Of course. Well, I, I say this. You you should already know this about me, Kyle. But anytime I can do something for you, for the foundation, for the podcast, whatever, man, the answer is yes. If I'm available, the answer is yes. I got a crazy call about you one day. Uh -oh. This guy's like, hey, do you know this guy? And I'm like, well, I've heard of him. <laughs> and uh, I forget the guy's name, but he called me. He was trying to get you a SIG. Yeah, uh-huh, Mark. And you ended... It was yeah, who, Mark. I, yeah, what was the story there? He ended up... They got you a they SIG, did, right? yes. You, man, 
one of the one of the best gifts I've ever received in my life. You helped uh, you helped them, and Sig provided me with a Legion, a gun that I have been looking, I have wanted for twenty years. So thank you. Yeah, I didn't do anything. I made the connection, well, but I didn't do anything. The but it was awesome. Man. They called me up and they're like. Do you know this guy? And I'm like, do I know yeah, that guy? Yeah. Well, yep. no, thank you. That's still one of the one of the nicest gifts somebody's ever given me, man. <laughs> well, good, good. Well, it's been a pleasure to talk with you as well and, and keep doing what you're doing. And by the way, thank you for taking a little bit of time away from your family and your grandson's big graduation ceremony. My granddaughter. Be, or your granddaughter's she, big graduation. She graduated from kindergarten yeah. today. Thanks for taking a little bit of time away from the family to be on the podcast today, man. All right, man. We'll Good. See you God bless America. Yeah. See you around. Like Kyle said, everybody needs something that gets them out of bed tomorrow and they're excited and they're looking forward to all of us, not just former warriors. We all need a mission and we all need a mission that's going to make a difference in somebody's life. I hope you were encouraged by this interview with my buddy, Kyle Lamb, this legendary name and voice in military and law enforcement circles. You know, we have a lot of people connected with this podcast, not just from the military, not just law enforcement from all walks of life. They're actually connected from all over the world. And a lot of them are deeply connected with one another in what's called the unbeatable army. If you want to become part of the unbeatable army, it's totally free. I send you content during the week. All you got to do is go to unbeatablearmy.com. If you're not already subscribing on your favorite podcast platform, why don't you go ahead and hit that button on YouTube or on your podcast platform right now? And why don't you go ahead and follow us on social media? Just search for at unbeatable podcast. You're going to meet some pretty amazing people on those social media channels like the fan of the week for this week, Sarah Brown. Hey, Sarah, you're amazing. You're so amazing. We want to tell everybody how amazing you are. That's why we call you our fan of the week for this week. Thanks, Sarah, for being such an amazing listener. And for everybody else out there, thanks for tuning in today. Can't wait to bring you an even more exciting guest next week. See you next time. 